Constantinople has fallen, and all across Europe, ancient vampires known as Methuselah rise to claim vast territories as their own. This is the War of Princes, where the political maneuvering of old stand side by side with the armies of ghouls and canines clashing in the night. But vampires are not the only ones making this land their own. In the wild places, the Guru have their cairns. Mages have ancient sites of power for magic. The Shadow Inquisition has risen to eradicate the enemies of God. And the enigmatic Fae have their own plans. Welcome to the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 11 of season 2 of the World of Dark Ages podcast, Medieval World of Darkness. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. So, we have a new patron. Thank you very much, Jason Vines. And Peter, how are things in your end? Uh, things are pretty good. The, the spring seems to actually be here. Uh, I uh, went... My, my local HEMA club had a small uh, tournament uh, yesterday. I didn't participate because I'm not good enough and I don't own all the <laughs> gear, but it was still cool to watch. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's that's nice. I'm I'm preparing for there's if if anyone, uh, it's it's gonna feel weird saying this uh, having a role playing pod. But if anyone doesn't want to spend their weekends inside playing games, then I can recommend the uh, Wrestle Four Day Marching Challenge, which is from uh, May 26th to May 29th. Um, so if you Google that, and we can probably put up a link in the uh, on the Facebooks as well, uh, you're you're supposed to uh, basically get out walking, just just uh, do some outside time, uh, and you uh, upload your results on how far you you walked each day, and at the end of it, you can uh, compare yourself to people all over the world, and you can get yourself a medal, which oh. is always yeah, everyone likes bling, and and so that's. Uh, that's what me and Podcast Dog is going to do that ah. weekend. And then we could walk 500 miles and yes. then maybe walk 500 more. Yes, but I would probably fall down at someone's door if I did that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, speaking of HEMA, I bought myself a new sword today. Ooh, cool. For for HEMA or for... Uh, no, no. Um, well, mainly just because I wanted it. Um, my friendly local gaming store uh, is celebrating its 30th birthday today, and they have 20% off on just about everything. And they have these hand-forged, high-carbon uh, weapons. I think they're from the Czech Republic, because most of those are. Mm, yeah. And with 20% discount, that's, that's nothing to sneeze at when you're buying something that costs what they do. So I decided to treat myself. I spent, I spent the money that I'd gotten back in, um, in taxes to buy myself a, a new sword. For those of you who are sword aficionados, it is closest to an Oakshot Type 10, which means late Viking era Viking sword. And it is absolutely wonderful. It's currently uh, resting in the bathroom because I sprayed it down with uh, with oil and then I have to, uh, to polish the blade. There's just a tiny bit of rust on it, but mm. it is... Wonderful, and there will obviously be pictures. So, speaking of uh, of swords and and those who wield them, our book this time is *The Road of Kings*, the second road book written by Stephen Kenson and developed by Matthew McFarland. As always, let's start with the cover. Uh, just like *Road of the Beast*, this is a black and white chapter divider from the core book that's been colorized. I am ninety nine percent sure it's supposed to be Luchita, uh, the La Sombra sign signature character. I like this cover better than *A Road of the Beast*. And it's not a bad picture at all, but 
it has an action feel to it that I think might not be the best look for Road of Kings. I would think something that maybe projects the majesty of the road a little more would would be more appropriate. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. I was I was thinking of of these covers as well, and and um, I've been uh, I've been listening to another podcast on it's it's mostly on on Dungeons and Dragons, but it's uh, from a guy called Matt Colville. Uh, and I can really recommend him. And and he he did a thing where he looked at different covers on different editions of of D and D, and he made a rather interesting point in in that the the earlier D and D covers when you bought like the the player's handbook, they usually were quite almost cinematic or at least dramatic in that you had like uh, a, a, an elf and a human warrior and perhaps a dwarf fighting lizard cultists or something. So you would really get a feel of what what that game was about. Uh, and and as the editions progressed, you you got more and more like generic pictures of, of stuff like that. And, and and we kind of get the the pinnacle of, of that because it's it's kind of similar in other role playing games as well and and as far as role playing games in general goes uh, the white wolf ones are, are really the pinnacle of that because you just have the title and then a symbol on it uh, yeah. so so at least this shows us what like a character from the book but uh, yeah I, I think you make a good point because like if if i would just look at the cover and and read if i didn't know what the road of kings was I, I wouldn't get an idea of what it was just from looking at the cover, uh, which might be good or it might be bad. But but yeah, it's it's not a very regal picture. Uh, although a lot of royalty did stab people, so I guess it's, <laughs> they certainly did. Yeah. So. But it's you bring up an interesting point, and I think it's something that might be worth discussing at some point. The whole idea with covers, because you're right. When you look back, once you had those beautiful covers by people like Larry Elmore, and I'm blanking out on other names right now, but but Elmore was obviously the big one, and you had these like very beautiful basically miniature paintings mm. that were really evocative. And now the thing has become very minimalist in, in many cases. If I think about a lot of non-fantasy role-playing games, then yeah, oftentimes you'll have a symbol and the, the text of it. So it's, it's something that could be an interesting discussion. How much does the picture or lack of on the cover of a role-playing book, how much does it does it really does it really matter? Because obviously, if you read the title "Road of Kings," you should know what it is. So, does the the cover picture really matter? So, I think there's there's a discussion there to be had either on Facebook or maybe as a as a side quest. Yeah, yeah, we can we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. So, as for the rest of the art, I think most of it's of really good quality, and I generally like it. However, the guy on page thirteen who might actually supposed to be Kane. He kind of looks like a pro wrestler. Yeah, I was I was about to say that as well. Like if like just just imagine him with wearing a, a, a trench coat and looking over the ring. He he looks like the Undertaker. Yeah, he looks like when, a mix of, of the Undertaker and the Ultimate Warrior. <laughs> yeah, but but when when the Undertaker, not when he's doing the rolling dice in the back of his head, but but like when when the Undertaker is doing his "I'm mad at you, so I'm gonna stare oh, you yeah. down" kind of thing, it it really looks at him, which is kind of interesting. But because at, at when 
at his very first match, the Undertaker was actually introduced as Kane, the Undertaker. Yeah. So, so we now actually know what happened to to the vampiric Kane. He turned into a pro wrestler. Exactly, and considering the longevity of uh, of the Undertaker and how untouchable he was in. Um, um, WrestleMania matches. Yeah. It it kind of makes sense, and we've gotten a bit off track here. <laughs> on on page fifty four, we have a, yeah. Um, on page fifty four, we have a group of warriors in armor that's at least one hundred and fifty years out of date. It's like very late medieval armor, even like something you'd you might see someone wearing from from Spain invading South America. Uh, and finally, we have the barbarian chieftain oh, uh, yeah. on page eight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. that picture would look a bit silly in a Dungeons & Dragons book, much less in something that's supposed to be historically correct. But I'm going to turn it over to you, because I think there's some interesting outfits that you probably want to discuss. Yeah, I'm I'm going to just... Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to the Barbarian. But, but yeah, <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing about this book is that when I... The, the process that I go through when I, I start reading these books is... Uh, I usually start by just... Yeah, scanning through it real quickly and, and take a look at the, of the pictures and stuff like that. And and it started out really like, yeah, they, this looks really cool. The first kind of chapter uh, spread uh, or chapter divider, we have uh, a knight again in, in too modern of armor, but still it's it's a fairly good picture of, of a knight being embraced and, and a scholar uh, just observing him. Uh, looks really cool. And then we have um, on page seven, we have something that... If if it would have been like a 15th century court, it would have been awesome because you have the the kind of uh, tight outfits uh, that or or rather uh, tight hose the the what the pant thingies and and kind of uh, a bit more uh, voluminous uh, jackets or doublets of of uh, I think is supposed to be some kind of court uh, courtier and then in the background we have. Uh, a bunch of nice uh, ladies, uh, and one of them is wearing the, the kind of traditional princess cone hat, pointy cone <laughs> hat that's very popular in uh, in artwork and and kind of like depictions. But it was it was basically a thing from the 1430s to the 1490s, um, and the, the the hat is called a henin. Uh, and and they look ridiculous, and they were. So I I understand why they went out of fashion relatively quick. Um, there was uh, a lady called Margaret of of York who had one at her wedding in 1468, and and that's a really ridiculous one. And I think they actually still have it in a museum somewhere. But but again, it's like yeah, you start seeing the the looking at the picture, and and some of them are silly. We had a pro wrestler. We have on. On, on a later page, we have a bunch of, on page 10, we have what looks like a, a bunch of Roman uh, senators and uh, noble ladies uh, having a late night dinner, blood included, of course. Uh, and then then you get to, like, you have even earlier than the, than the barbarian you have on page, uh, let's see... Uh, 78 you basically have Wonder Woman or Cena or both uh, standing around in, in not the most ridiculous boob armor I've ever seen but it's no it's it's, it's, su- it's a bit subdued for boob armor but yeah still. but it's it's still boob armor and she has the kind of it's it's not even the kind of 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 
pleated leather skirt that the Romans had when they, they had the things hanging from the belt that I can never remember what they're called. But it's they're called singulum. Like, yeah, thank you. Uh, it's <laughs> it's like an actual skirt, and and then we get to the to the example characters, and and they they just look. Well, we we do have an like an evil nun that actually looks rather cool, but but the the barbarian, it's yeah, there there are so many things wrong with this, and and I'm just gonna mention a few because first of all, which is just weird, he's he's wearing like a a nineteen 19th, 19th century corset, yeah, which which is and and sandals and a loincloth. That's that's basically it, um, and and the sandals are probably the least of his problems. Uh, but I don't know. Th- there's a thing in in like a lot of of barbarian aesthetics where you're supposed to have these wide, in in Renaissance fairs and fantasy larps, they're often called battle belts, which is yeah. which is basically just a a really wide belt. I have it's no like idea. It's like a what... weightlifter's belt, basically. Yeah, exactly. And I have no idea what why they would be good for a, a fantasy warrior, but they kind of look cool. But this guy is actually wearing a laced corset. Uh, and I think it's, yeah, when you look close at it, I think that's the thing that's holding up his loincloth. Uh, so it's it's a bit weird of a combination. And then he has this huge battle axe. And, and yeah, not... I, I would like to see him actually swing that without throwing out his back. Yeah, I, perhaps that's why he's wearing the corset. <laughs> uh, but, but, but again, it's it's so huge that it's it's ridiculous. And... Even let, let's assume that he's because he is a vampire and uh, well he, and he does have two dots of, of fortitude so he probably could uh, actually use it without hurting himself. But the problem is that why would you want such a huge axe and it's it's double sided as well so he's basically carrying around the Batman signal on on a huge pole. <laughs> Um, and <laughs> that's 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 to call in his his elder gangrel. He's like yeah, he holds yeah, it, up it must and be, it becomes yeah, a bad signal. Yeah, but, oh god. Because there's there's a thing called diminishing returns, yes. and and it's like if yeah, there like if if you don't if you can't solve a problem with a small axe, yeah, you could probably solve it with a bigger axe. Uh, or, or in modern warfare, if like if you can't solve with with a small gun, you bring in the bigger guns and and so on and so forth. Uh, but at at some point, there's like there's no point in making things bigger exactly. because they're just gonna be. In modern times, it's often because it's it gets more complicated to to do the thing and make them work. You don't really have that problem with access, but at at some point, like it's. It's more about the power behind the axe than the size of the axe itself, because this is so wide. Like, it's it's wider than he is, and and this barbarian is a huge guy. Yeah. Uh, and and so like even if you would chop at it, like if he's strong enough to actually wield an axe that big, he wouldn't need an axe that big. Even if he wanted to, like I don't know, chop elephants in half, he would just yeah. need like a slightly larger axe and just put more power behind it. Uh, and and it's such a weird fantasy trope. And it's it's like no, why it it doesn't what? make any sense. Yes, and podcast dog agrees that it doesn't make any sense. And also, if you look, if you take one look at him, my question yeah. is, where's he from? Yeah, 
Exactly, because like he's not from any kind of uh, nomadic horse culture because no. he has no uh, clothing on the inside of his, th- his thighs and he's wearing mm. sandals. And anyone who's ever ridden a horse or who knows anything about horse riding will know that's going to you know, yeah, murder your legs. Yeah. He ca- he's not from, l- let's say, the Saharan region of Africa because he's wearing almost no clothing. He would be sunburned in an instant. Yeah, He's not from let's say, north of Christian Scandinavia because he'd freeze to death. I can't figure out where he's supposed to be from, looking yeah. like that. I, he's, I he's think he might be from, be from the Diablo Conan franchise land. or something. Exactly. Or... It's, it's yeah, that, that one's pretty damn silly, to be honest. Yeah, it's it's just... And, and yeah, we, 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 we... I don't know if we actually talked about why, why huge weapon doesn't make any sense in the episode about weapons, but go back if... But if I haven't, if we didn't, then you get kind of a the short version of it here. If if you want to listen to us talk more about it, drop us a line on Facebook, and we'll we'll dedicate a section on the next time we see a huge and ridiculous weapon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but but yeah. But ex- except for that, uh, we the uh, the example characters, the the courtly lady, just looks like she's late to a lingerie party because she's wearing a very modern lacy uh, bra underneath again some kind of corset um the the wealthy merchant actually kind of does look like a wealthy merchant uh, except again a, a few hundred years too early I, like it's it's very fantasy but it's still it's still okay uh, and like i said you had the the evil non mother superior character which is also cool um you you have a, a ruined noble, which is just this one of these corrupted uh, evil people who has managed to break off his sword, uh, and then you have the iron mistress, uh, which again looks more like something again with some kind of corset and uh, and a bikini bottom, and it it looks she's basically a, she's going to the same party as the courtly lady, only she's she's up for something completely different at that party yeah yeah and i think there might be some slanish cultists involved in that party uh but yeah it's it's like the it's like the even more kinky version of of wonder woman once again but yeah so if if we can exclude these characters from the the general impression of the artwork then i would say that it's it's actually really good it's some really good stuff in here yeah so to get into the text of it we start with an intro story that i actually found rather interesting with a viewpoint being that of a mortal who's involved with a canine court and you basically have various stages of him growing older and older and refusing to become a ghoul or to become embraced. And it's it's a really interesting variation on the look of uh, a canine court. So I love that. I only have one complaint, and that is the description of swords, because at one point, a sword is described as being in a sheath. And at another mm. time, a metal ringing sound is mentioned when a sword is drawn from, from a scabbard. Uh, now, the difference between a sheath and a scabbard is that a sheath is flexible. Back then, it would have been made of leather. Modern sheaths are often made of nylon. Uh, and a sh- sword generally weren't carried in sheaths for many reasons that I'm not going to get into. A scabbard is rigid. Uh, back then, it would have been made of two pieces of wood with a groove in each of them. And then you had leather around them. And that's what a sword was in. But 
If a sword makes a ringing sound when it's being drawn from a scabbard, it means that the blade is scraping against the metal at the top of the scabbard, which is there to reinforce the scabbard and also prevent water from seeping in. And that's a really bad idea, especially for a double-bladed sword, or sorry, double-edged sword, because you're blunting at least one of the edges by dragging yeah. that edge against metal. But, you know, in the end, I think this is, this is really small potatoes compared to what I think is a really good story. Yeah, I, I really like this. It's it's kind of a cheesy story, but it's kind of cheesy in in a historical way because you, you have this relationship uh, and uh, between two people who obviously love each other, but it's it's not a romantic uh, love in, in that sense. They're, they're not lovers, but they're two French, friends who love each other. And and if you look at, at like uh, knightly literature from many centuries like it's it's a thing going on you have this kind of uh, friends uh, brave knights weeping over wounded uh, yeah. friends dying in their arms and and the tears running down their face and, and stuff like that so it's it's again it's it is kind of cheesy but i i like this kind of cheese because it 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 fits the time period and it fits the kind of story and it fits the the kind of emotions and and um themes that that uh, uh, it wants to convey um yeah exactly if you read some of the old chanson de guest uh mm. arthurian stuff there is a lot of men being extremely emotional in a way that that like, like you said it might feel cheesy to, uh, today because there's this idea that well real heroic men are very stoic but no back then a, a real heroic man who would, who saw his boon companion being cut down would throw himself to the ground and wail and tear at his clothes to show that he actually cared. Yeah, exactly. And and the, like the 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 kind of emotional relationship between men because both the main characters in this story are, are dudes. Uh, it, it 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 wasn't like it, it was a thing back then. You had it, and and even like in fairly modern depictions of, of Arthurian style, like Prince Valiant, if you've ever read that yeah, comic. Yeah. Uh, Hal Foster actually uh, includes things like that when... when uh, it, it's completely anachronistic, that, that comic, but it's still kind of fun because it has some some historical aspects to it. But um, but, but again, he even he includes where, like... Uh, I think it's when Tristan dies, for example, and, and um, Prince Valiant and, and Sir Gawain is, are, like, openly weeping for, for their dead body. Uh, and and so on. So so yeah, it's it's a really nice depiction of of the kind of uh, friendship that not only actual people would have uh, during this time period, but but it's a very good depiction on how a relationship between a mortal and a canine uh, could be. So yeah, I, it's it's really cool. It's it's yeah. one of my one of the better. Uh, like not only introduction in introductions that we've had, but also one of the cooler, like in character stories that we've actually had. Yeah, I, I think so as well. Moving on to chapter one, that presents the history, traditions, and current affairs of the Road of Kings, presented as letters from a scholar of the road to higher ups, with commentary from followers of other roads, including the narrator from Road of the Beast, as well as Anatole. Uh, it ends with one follower from each of the other roads giving their take on the Road of Kings. Just like with Road of the Beast, I think there's a lot of filler here. It feels like they really had to stretch it to fill the word count. And I'm not a fan of having 
as much commentary from followers of other roads on on the Road of Kings as they have here, I think they should have stuck with either a running commentary or the final commentary, and then I've taken some time to give commentary from other followers of the Road of Kings who might have a different view on what the um, mm. what the author is saying. And also, one of the fonts used for the followers of other roads is really difficult to read. Yeah, yeah, we we have the annoying font uh, syndrome again, where where they have like the one of the first that they use is is actually uh, it, it's readable, and then you have the traditional kind of like. Uh, almost gothic font and and then you just have one that it's I couldn't even read it because it was so annoying um, but what I did like about when they have the different uh, basically the different voices giving their commentary is that they have uh, they have a one uh, Ventru who's from the the road of humanity and one who's from the the road of sins. Uh, which I think is kind of cool because, you, and then you also get uh, an, another Ventru who's actually on the Road of Kings comments on it. So, so I I think that's actually a kind of a nice way to show that uh, because the, the Ventru and Road of Kings are so kind of interconnected, and they, yeah. they talk about that as well. So I think it's cool that that you can still get kind of first of all to show that no, not all Ventru are on the Road of Kings. Uh, because they they ha- obviously are, are others as well, which is kind of nice. But but also that you get this kind of commentary from from uh, f- like why a Ventru doesn't necessarily have to be on the Road of Kings, and uh, and the, that part is actually quite nicely done, I think. So, uh, but yeah, o- overall, all of the different commentaries and and especially the different fonts. It, it just makes it a bit hard to to get an overall feel uh, and like yeah it's it's a bit messy simply put yeah one thing that that I wondered a little bit about is that that the narrator he says that the road of kings is the first and noblest of the many roads and I mean noblest is something that is subjective but <sighs> Even well, with he, the road he's going to say that because he's on the yeah, road. So, but, 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 but yeah, <laughs> even with the road of kings' arrogance, I would say that it it stretches credulity too much to say that it's the first road. I I would say that that road of humanity must be the first road since it makes sense for vampires to once they've been turned from being humans just try to hold on to their humanity and oh, in yeah. in later times they mention in or in later books and other books they mention that that it's generally agreed among scholars that the first two roads were road of humanity and road of the beast because basically you have humans becoming yeah. vampires so they try to hold on to their humanity and if they can't do that then it makes sense to just try and and work in tandem with the beast so it 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 really ruins the if you're looking at it as in character letters it kind of ruins the credibility of the writer that he tries to claim that the road of kings is one of the first roads because it's so obvious that that no at yeah. least road of humanity should come first and probably also road of the beast are are you saying are you saying that the ventru can't be trusted or that they sometimes exaggerate their own grandeur well considering one of my favorite clans is clan brucia then yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah it also later mentions that the first stirrings of the road of kings was during the ancient roman empire so mm. that doesn't match up with what was already said and yeah. it also 
I mean, it, it's weird that they say the Roman Empire. I understand that there is a very strong connection between followers on the road and especially Clan Ventru and the Roman Empire. But you had the Greek city-states before that and you had the Mesopotamian city-states where the whole idea of elevated rulership yeah. was also in evidence. So, so, so I think they should have, have set the sort of real codification of the road of kings earlier than the the roman empire because yeah, that makes it a very yeah. uh, very very new road actually yeah that's that's actually a very good point uh, and yeah and I, I like that it would be cool if they like you could put it in in ancient egypt as well if you wanted to uh, and one one thing that i i kind of um an, an aspect of how the road is presented that i kind of like though is it, it's kind of like it, it's presented as that we 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 the scions of the road of of kings are are destined or almost uh, forced to rule that we are put in this place and we have to do the best of it because we are Canaanites and we're so yeah. cool. So it's it's almost like the the Canaanites version of of the white man's burden. So it so you kind of have like the dead man's burden where where you. Um, like oh oh woe poor us immortals that that are put in this place and that we have to do this. Uh, so I I think you could do something fun with that. Just twist it completely and turn it into this because the the concept of the white man's burden uh, is just a fucked up thing. It's it's basically yeah. that the the only people in the world that are are good enough and smart enough and brave enough to rule other people and to. Um, to uh, make civilization go forward uh, is is the white people from Europe and especially the ones that drink tea and and have Queen Victoria as their uh, the, the ruler uh, and so they have to spread out in the world and basically out of pity for the 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 poor non-white people just subjugate them and rule them. Yeah, exactly, and you you get the the, the same kind of thing here. You mentioned yeah. that, that, yeah, the inherent arrogance is no, no. We're not ruling because ooh, we are power hungry. Yeah. We're we're just taking up the mantle. Almost, yeah. you should almost be glad that we're willing to rule you. Exactly, and and in a game about horrible monsters who drink the blood of people to sustain themselves, I think that's something that you could. You you could play around with and and do something interesting with without having to deal at least as much with the problems that that colonialism and white man's burden have. So yeah, exactly. Uh, so that's that's an aspect of it that you might or might not use or enjoy. But there we have it. Yeah. So there there are real, some things in this chapter that that can really give you some ideas, but. It just—it seems buried in verbosity. There's a, there's a lot of words being used to explain things here. Mm. So chapter two, it looks at the ins and outs of the Road of Kings, and one impression I get from this chapter, as well as the previous chapter, is that one most followers of the Road have some kind of high-level position, prince of a domain or even higher, and two. All rulers of a domain follow the same rules and traditions as followers of this road, even if they don't follow this road. And that seems a bit bit much, I think. I know that we're in the whole unreliable narrator situation, mm. but but still, you know, you're supposed to get something useful out of this, and it just that that seems a bit much. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. It's uh, again, we we come back to this the old problem of there isn't enough vampires around to fill all the uh, the roles in the play so to speak that that like 
yeah, the, this could probably work if you have like thousands of vampires all over the place. So you can actually have this kind of almost class system between the rulers and, and the rest of them. Uh, but but like there's only supposed to be a, a, a few handful of canites in each city. And, and then again, we're talking cities in Europe, which would didn't really have back then so so yeah it's it it's a bit you have to work around it um, to to make it work yeah so one thing we'll obviously have to address is the sidebar on page 31 regarding yeah. women on the road of kings it is a bit weird really because it states that women in 1230 might be royalty and even leaders but aren't likely to be warriors in the minds of most men a leader who cannot carry his troops into battle is no leader at all. Now, it's true that in 1230, it was generally expected of many nobles, not all, but many nobles, that they led men into battle. And yes, it was almost unheard of, but not quite for women to yes. lead uh, men I in battle. I have a list. And yes, women... <laughs> and, and women were not trained as warriors, but women, they did lead yep. sieges. They could train in what we might call civilian martial arts. We have evidence of the time that women did train that. And it was accepted that a noblewoman who gained a position of leadership did not lead troops. That was that was okay. Uh, also, I think in most other walks of life, like among merchants and in guilds, leaders did not have to lead men into battle. So I think this sidebar could be better spent examining just the general problems that women might face taking on leadership roles in the Middle or, Ages. Or give us advice on how women could actually act in, in positions of power. Uh, but but yeah, like even in during this time setting, we, we have people like Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was a very... I, I knew she yeah. was going to be the first one. I love Eleanor yeah, of Aquitaine. Yeah, because she, she was so instrumental in, in the politics of, of not only England, but, but this general area of, of England and, and northern France and, and stuff like that going on for quite some time. You have Eleanor de Montfort, who during the, the 12... Mm. Uh, she she also actually commanded a castle during a siege, if I'm not mistaken. But but during... Um, in, in the 1260s, you had a bunch of... Uh, basically, some of the things that would later turn into uh, Game of Thrones uh, stuff, like actual rivalry between noble houses and... and um, um, de Montforts in general were, were a whole family of... of pretty nasty people but again oh yes. you, you have Eleanor de Montfort uh, and and you have uh, during the English Civil War you, you have Blanche uh, Arundel and and Mary Banks who both uh, commanded castle during sieges uh, up in Scotland in 1338 you had a a lady called Black Agnes who managed to uh, sustain a, a fortress uh, against according to the sources 20,000 English soldiers and every time they oh. every time they give those kind of numbers you you know that you that's that's just fantasy numbers because like 20,000 yeah. people that's that's like not that that's a very large English city at this point so so no but but she still managed to do it and she managed to do it for so long and so well that uh, it was written into a ballad uh, where the opponent um, the guy who was actually besieging the castle, he he said again in in this ballad, uh, came I uh, came I early, came I late. I found Agnes at the gate, so she she kind of beat him <laughs> to it all the time. So, so it, it's like yeah, it's it's just come on, you you had these fantastic women, and 
if you want to put like a vampiric spin on it, we can't really have we or, or like we already have a problem of vampires leading armies in open battle because you fought battles during the daytime. But if there's one kind of warfare where vampires actually doesn't really have that kind of problem hiding out during the daytime, it's sieges. Because during a siege, yes. you can just hide during the day and you would make night attacks just to kind of harass the enemy. Uh, the people being besieged in the fort or, or castle or city or whatever, they would make sorties and they would make them at night to uh, to defeat the enemies. Um, you have one very famous example of a night battle during the uh, Hundred Years' War where basically it's, it's actually kind of a small uh, English garrison that managed to defeat... Uh, three French forces that are they're, they're all camped outside the, the city um, and what the English managed to do is basically that that they sneak out into the middle of night uh, they attack one of the the French camps and uh, and it's just so confusing that the other two camps first of all they don't really know what the hell is going on uh, and and then when the English has managed to defeat the the French at one camp they just run over to the next one and do the same thing. <laughs> two times more over so yeah. like if if that's not a cool thing to do with with a bunch of vampires i don't know what is and if a few you have the same thing in um it, during the siege of of acre in 1291 where the three knightly orders the templars the hospitallers and the germanic order they basically lead a cavalry charge at night from one of the gates and burn down some of the enemy siege engines facing very little resistance just slaughtering everything in their path once again like you said that's a cool thing to invite uh, to involve vampires in yeah exactly and and like it doesn't matter if a few of those people riding out at night are are women or not because they're still gonna kick ass no. so especially if, if if they're wearing armor with a full helmet you're not gonna yeah, notice exactly uh, and of course uh, we getting on a few hundred years later as well we we need to mention joan of arc uh, so exactly, uh, but but yeah, it's that's that sidebar just annoyed the heck out of me because it's yeah, it doesn't make any sense to be perfectly honest. No. So the first part of this chapter deals with how followers of the road choose and tra train their childer, and it all seems a bit um, obvious, really. Like they're careful in choosing their childer, and there's always training canine etiquette after the embrace. And I'm thinking, yeah, doesn't. Most vampires do this. Uh, there's two sidebars on ideas for preludes and chronicles that are rather interesting, which involve these sort of things with with how you were trained and, and stuff like that. But otherwise, it just seemed a bit bland. Yeah, it's it's not really something that we haven't seen before, is it? Like like you said, like don't all vampires kind of choose pick and choose really carefully? Um, but, but yeah, it, it feels a bit padded because there, there are some things, like you mentioned, the the um, kind of initiation rituals and, and preludes and, and chronicles that you could run from this. Uh, but yeah, it feels a bit stretched out, to, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, so following this, there's a section on how to start following the road of kings and the practices of following. And, yet, and once again, I feel a lot of words were being used to say some basic things but one thing i really like here is the idea of fostering mm. where a child of a follower of the road is sent to the court of a more powerful vampire to be trained this 
quite closely follows the mortal practices among the nobles at this yep. time. And it's even something that the Ventru sometimes practice in modern times. So I, I like this a lot. Yeah, exactly. And, and as you said, it, it was a thing that um, that people would do for, uh, like, during, in the feudal society, you would, uh, for many different reasons, if nothing else, then kind of political. Like, if, if I have your son... Uh, and I raise him, and you have my son. Then, then we better stay friends because otherwise, something bad might happen happen to our offspring. Uh, so, and yeah, exactly. That, that the same thing goes if you're a vampire as well. Like, yeah, you have stakes. I have stakes. You have my child. I have your child. Um, let we we can put things together, but let's not. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's a nice touch actually. Um, There's so many options for they mentioned you can play a, a, an entire fostering prelude or or start of a chronicle which i think could be really cool and and it's it's a great way of saying yeah yeah i have some contacts at the court of the prince of this city because i was actually raised as a canine in that court or ooh i have a rival because we were two canines being fostered in that court and we were constantly competing for attention so there's some really great character creation and role-playing opportunities in this that I, th- I think it's something that you want to highlight for anyone who decides to play someone following the road of kings or even play a ventru who's not following the road of kings like were you fostered or even say you were fostered yeah. uh, create your background surrounding the fact that you were fostered yeah and and it's also a great way to include um not only like like if you're setting in, in set the game in England to include not just like for example French or German characters, but but you can make them come from as far away as as you want basically, and and it could be like oh, yeah. yeah, this is my uh, I met this guy down in the Holy Land, and and his sire is actually from even farther away, so he sent this this child to bringing up, and then you could have. I don't know an an Indian prince or or anything like that, uh, and and it's of course it's still going to be a bit of a fish out of water situation, but it it's still uh, a logic way to a logical way to introduce someone completely different or at least more different than than everyone else to the setting um, or, or to introduce new characters in general. So yeah, it's it's a uh, th- this is the kind of things that I want from this kind of book. Like, how do I incorporate characters? How do I incorporate uh, different ideas and different concepts? So yeah, that that thing is um, is really good as well. Mm. Uh, then we have a small section on the hierarchy of the road and it contains some good stuff about various ranks it makes sense that the road of kings is one of the most organized Mm. and so has very formalized ranks and indeed this is something that can be used in any chronicle since many of the positions mentioned here are the ones that would be found in most domains not just those run by followers of the road so I I like that little section there there are are two things here that I I really like uh, and uh, it's uh, f- first of all, and but that might actually be in the previous chapter. But I, I, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first book uh, chronologically, at least, where we hear hear about just the cars, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I I like how that kind of idea uh, is put forth, and you can show how it grows, and uh, and in in. This uh, setting or in this time period, the, the Justicars are basically the Road of Kings uh, 
religious police or inquisitors, which is kind of cool. <laughs> and it's kind of juxtaposed against the actual Inquisition and and how they really don't go along, which is a, a nice twist. Um, and and it also makes sense for, for like modernite vampires why they wouldn't like Justicars if their first encounter would have been a Road of Kings Justicar 600 years ago. Um, but but the other thing that I really like is is the kind of how formalized a lot of things is with, with the initiation and with the rites and, and um, presentation of, of new, uh, like a new, a new uh, person to a court. Uh, and in some ways it... Kind of reminds me um, on how uh, the Japanese feudal society was at certain points because uh, since uh, that was later on, but but like since the Japanese society was a closed society for for centuries, they had time to basically make anything an art form or a ritual. So like everything was was formalized in, in from how you drink tea to how you disembowel an enemy or yourself. Uh, and I think that that kind of, of formality uh, would really attract followers of uh, of the Road of Kings and and attract people who like uh, follow the kind of Japanese feudal the the oh what's it called the the way of the sword uh, Bushido yeah Bushido thank you very much uh, like basically what I'm saying is that I I want Japanese vampires who follow the road of the kings because a, a samurai <laughs> like a, a follower of bushido uh like there should be a, a path of bushido basically in this book in the in the path or just twist the path of chivalry so you can include uh japanese characters because it's it's so fitting and and so thematic um yeah at, at least from my kind of layman's uh knowledge of of how japanese society was at at certain points in history and, and how it is. Um, because, like, you have... Uh, or you had people practicing, like, brush strokes for, for calligraphy for years to perfect it, and then just extrapolate that to a vampire who sits around for decades just trying to perfect that that brush stroke or how to to pull a bow or or draw a sword or something you can you can get some really cool stuff out of it i think yeah i think i think you're right about that uh, then we take a look at the courts of the canines and i kind of feel like this is something that maybe should have been in the core book or a generalized book on how domain courts work since not all princes are followers of the road of kings mm. but i like this it gives you some good stuff to use when portraying a vampire lord's court one small issue comes in the sidebar on Trial by Combat, where it's mentioned that when both participants are knights, the contest often takes the form of a joust, without mentioning the problem that most canines have with animals. You can't mm. expect every follower of the road to have animalism or the inoffensive to animals merit, which leaves only ghoul, the ghouling of horses, and that has its own problems at times. But other than that, you know, I, I like this part. Yeah, I, I do, and I, I like the, the, the... You have a section on the... Uh, the midnight festivals and and how basically yeah. uh, vampires like to play around uh, as much as uh, as as people do and and like yeah it it makes sense if if you're gonna have a court and if you're going going to be a king uh, which is basically what this road is all about then then you have to act like a king and and a lot of it during this time was to to entertain your guest and to 
basically show off that I can afford this. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Uh, we then have the obligatory section on clients that follow the road, and it is what you'd expect, including a lot of, of ways how members of the low clans can follow the road. I don't know if you have any specific comments uh, on this section here. No, well, no, nothing in... Just a small thing, and, and I think that it would be really interesting to play gangrel characters who follow this road, uh, because, like, if if there's one clan that actually suffers a lot from uh, from from frenzying, it's the gangrel because they get all the animalistic features, uh, and so it it would be it would almost even make sense for for gangrel to be one of the strongest adherents to the or, or most numerous adherents to this uh, road, since it would be a way for them to avoid growing i don't know fins or or tails or whatever <laughs> uh but like in in general i also like how similar and they they mentioned this previously as well when they um when you have the kind of the history of the road that that the road of the beast and the road of kings isn't like it, it's not two completely different things it's it's just basically the different sides of the same coin yeah, exactly. Then we have a look at the variations on the path, and we'll get to them later, as well as a mention of various power groups, specifically knightly orders, guilds, merchant houses, and cults. The church is missing here, but gets mentioned at the end of the chapter, so no big deal. The info is, for once, shortened to the point, which makes sense, since much of this information is available in other books, but they do ref- uh, sorry, other books that they reference, such as, you know, the Ashen Knight. I think this does a good job of reminding people of the more po- powerful organizations that a follower of the road might try to influence. Mm. Yeah, exactly, and and to show that it's it's not just the nobility and the knight lorders and the church. You you also have the merchant guilds and and houses that are starting to become like a real. Yeah, a real powerhouse. Yeah, exactly. We then end with a section on falling from the road, a mention of important sites, and a short section on mortal vassals. As for the whole falling from the road, as we've mentioned before, it seems strange that followers of the various roads can be as centralized and organized as portrayed in medieval times. Uh, the important sites seem a bit bland. You have, uh, among other things, you have three cities with when, when true overlords residing there. So that didn't really pique my interest. And finally, we have the mortal vassal sections mentioning the nobility and the church. Nothing new there. And then the gentry. Now, this one's a bit, it's a bit weird of a word to use. What they mean are wealthy non-nobles, non-churchmen. So basically, well-to-do burghers. In any case, this seems once again to be a case of using a lot of words to state something rather obvious. Uh, There are good ideas in this section, but I generally struggle to get invested in the entire chapter. Because as as we mentioned in Road of the Beast, I don't find roads engaging enough, enough that I think a whole book for each is necessary. And it feels like the writer is struggling to meet the word count. Yeah, I agree. This book is what is like ninety something pages long, and yeah, it 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 doesn't really need that many pages to to say what they want to say. Uh so chapter three is about running a Road of Kings chronicle. It's about character creation and so on. When it comes to chronicles, I think they do a good job of presenting a lot of good ideas, giving tips on how to run them. It's something that White Wolf books are generally quite good at. Yeah, they, they are. They, they have a lot of different, uh, again, like plot points and, and ideas how to introduce characters to each other and, and to make... Uh, 
uh, the code reads work together or work against each other. But but yeah, it's overall it's it's really nice. Uh, and and some of them again make a lot of sense. Like they they talk about different conflicts you can have, and and you could have like uh, one of them is is between a, a vassal and and their liege, uh, which again was a thing during this time period and and later on as well the hundred years war was basically a war between uh vassals and liege like the the yeah the english kings were technically vassals to the french uh to the french king uh but and and so they basically fought about that so yeah it it works or it didn't during the hundred years war but you get my point (laughs) yeah uh, character creation tips are what you'd expect. I really like the sidebar on whether or not to start with a domain and the s- suggesting in the sidebar that you do not start with a domain so that you can enjoy the challenge of acquiring one. I like games where characters uh, put the work in to get a power base and it also means a lot more if they've earned it in game. So I really, I love that sidebar. I also like how they mentioned just how useful animalism is. Mm. We've talked about it before, but at this time, animals are much more ubiquitous in urban settings than they are today. And people rely on animals a lot more. So for so for canines seeking to become rulers, animalism just makes sense. Even if it's only just a dot or two. So yeah, standard section, but it did have some, some really good bits in it. Yeah, I agree. I... <laughs> From from like a, a thematic point of view from the book, they it, they kind of make it rather obvious that that the Road of Kings and the Ventru are are <laughs> greatly tied together because like the, the first two disciplines and the, like the the useful disciplines that they mention is dominate and presence, and then they also have <laughs> other disciplines which is all of the rest basically. So so yeah, it's they they have some. Uh, some some really nice touches like that, uh, but but yeah, like you say, animalism is uh, it's a good thing to have if you want to do at least if you want to do stuff yourself. If you're uh, a lord, you can always have people do it for you. But but yeah, it's it's a like I I like that you get different aspects of things. We then come to the four variations on the road, and I really like them. We have the path of chivalry, pretty self-explanatory and it really deviates from the road and allows you to make what i think is very interesting characters then we have a new path the path of the merchant and i love me a wheeler dealer so i really like this one like the first time i played transylvania chronicles i had a character who this was that was before this book came out it was before even this edition of the game and i had a character basically make his own road of the merchant because he had become so much emerging that it made sense to him to basically make that as his road. So I, I have a special love for that. We have uh, Path of the Tyrant, which is pretty much Road of Kings turned up to 11. Perfect if you want an asshole prince for the characters to rebel against. Hmm. And then you have Path of the Vizier, which is for the people who want to be the power behind the throne, for characters who might not rule a domain, but who have the ear of those who do. So yeah, I love all four paths, and I think they have a lot of role-playing and storytelling potential. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I I like how they they manage to to convey what what each thing is uh, or what each, each path is supposed to be. 
I'm just going to point that the, that the knight on page 68, which uh, which represents the path of chivalry, has a really weird helmet, uh, and I'm not oh, yeah. I'm not talking about the the chicken kind of um, head uh, helmet ornament, but rather the visor doesn't really make any sense. Uh, but I digress. Uh, but, but again, I, I like the kind of different depictions uh, or the different versions of uh, of the Road of Kings. But I'm I don't know I don't know if they're different enough that they would ve- uh, warrant like different paths. Again, I'll say chivalry is definitely difficult, diff- different enough. You, I can get with the others def- what you're saying. Yeah, they they might not be different enough. But I'll argue chivalry is very different. Yeah, yeah, that that is that I agree with that. But but again, if if we're talking about this in, in the context of it having enough followers to uh, oh, to, yeah, to have true. like a, the different not necessarily organizations but but for someone to be able to say that yeah I'm a follower of the path of chivalry uh, and and not just I I'm on the road of kings but I interpret it this way and then some people are gonna say well that's just crazy but a few might like well I also kind of agree with that so so again we have this kind of problem in, in that. We would probably need a game with a lot more vampires in it and a lot more followers of king uh, kings in general to 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 like make room for these people. Uh, but but except for that, I, uh, I I really like how they still manage to tie things together, like on the hierarchy of sins, uh, the the bottom thing, the the uh, level one thing that you should never do. Uh, is breaking a sworn oath because mm. basically and, and they have slight variations of it because basically oaths is what holds the world together and makes sure that everything isn't fucked up uh, and and if you study law you're familiar with the Latin phrase pacta sunt servanda which means that if if you sign the contract you you have to like honor it basically and and i like how they have the different kind of justifications like yeah i want to do this for my reasons and you want to do it for your reasons but we're still going to do the same thing so it doesn't really matter why we do it as long as we all do it uh so that that's that was a nice touch even though the rest of the scenes vary quite a bit and and again the reasons for why they are sins vary quite a bit. Yeah, I I must say I love the um, the picture for the path of the vizier with this uh, woman po- quite clearly poisoning a chalice. It's just it's it it may be a bit it may be a bit stereotypical, but I just I think it's such an a great picture to to show off what the vizier is all yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it, like you said, it's it's a bit on the nose, but but yeah, I, I really like it as well. Yeah, we end with combo disciplines, merits and flaws, artifacts and texts. We get four combo disciplines, and two and a half of them are about learning the truth, which seems a bit much, but I do like all four, and they feel appropriate, as long as the storytellers are aware of how troublesome truth-telling powers can be. As for the merits and flaws, they seem pretty take-em-or-leave-em to me. Is there anything here you want to draw special attention to? Well, when it comes to the to the discipline powers, they, they seem kind of... Not not pointless, but but they seem a bit expensive for what they do. For example, you have the inspired greatness, uh, which requires presence three, and either fortitude or potence two. And I like how uh, how you can choose between the two. Uh, but then then what you do is 
to use this ability, the character uh, basi- basically you're lending your physical power to someone yeah. else. Uh, but to do that, you have to roll charisma and leadership, and then you can spend blood points to to actually give your physical strength to to someone else. So not only do you need three levels of presence, you also need two levels of of fortitude or potence. Then you have to spend. 21 experience points to actually get the Inspire Greatness uh, combination power. Then you have to make sure that you have a good enough charisma and leadership because it's a difficult of seven to actually succeed in the role. And then you have to uh, then, then you have to spend blood points to to actually do the thing. And and that just seems a lot for for not for, for something that is that isn't really that much. And to and and you can only do it to one person. So to be able to do it to more than one person, you you first have to have presence five or more, and then spend fourteen more experience points, and then you can roll. And depending on the number of successes you get, you you might be able to influence more, or you're you're able to influence more people. And I don't know. I I don't see a situation where I would spend those kind of resources to for this power. Um, and 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 some of the others, like the a few of the, the or at least the true tongue, which is dominate and presence. Like, can't you just dominate someone to, to to like tell me the truth or don't lie to me, and you would get basically the same thing for 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 a lot less job and experience points. Yeah, I think you're you're right in that that it 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 seems like it could be done with the uh, with with other means. So so yeah, I I agree with you on that. Now we move on to the artifacts and texts, and I gotta say I really like the artifacts. We have the Darthas Challenge, which is a really nice story item. The Tyrant's Lash feels quite appropriate for what it is. Uh, it has a neat power, and then there's the Vax, Wax Seal, which is really thematic for the time period and. Obviously, I have a love for for quote unquote magical items, mm-hmm. so I like these. Uh, and the texts are a bit bit blur. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah, but the, yeah. The artifacts awesome. Yeah, I agree, and and I think this is a good example of of when they in in this book and in other books, like when they keep it kind of simple, it's a lot more useful and and um, and, and not as messy as uh, as like if they want to force something in, because I I think. Probably the guy who had to write this book got someone higher up was like, yeah, and remember that you have to have at least three or four combination disciplines that's suitable for these kind of characters. And they just struggled to come up with something good. Uh, and I, I guess that they probably needed a few artifacts as well, but they actually managed to make something good out of the artifacts just because they keep them simple. Uh, that's that's just a guess and and like part of the reviewing the book, uh, but but yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, we end with sample characters and noteworthy followers on the road, and we've already talked a bit about, or actually quite a bit <laughs> about the sample characters, especially the barbarian warlord. And I'll say one thing: like these are characters that either service should serve as inspiration or plug and play. You can just grab one of them mm. and make your character and as such they are very i won't say stereotypical but very you know basic you have the merchant you have the noble you have the tsimish tyrant stuff like that but i think that's good because it's it's basically a way of sh- of showing well here you have the base and then you can you can just 
make variations on that if you want to make it their own. But there is a huge disconnect between how they're described and what the picture looks like. <laughs> like you have the the merchant with his uh, carefully hidden dagger, and then the picture has quite clearly a sword hanging by yeah, the side. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. stuff like that. You have the the tyrant who has a vicissitude of two, but the picture includes extra arms and tentacles that you couldn't make with that level of vicissitude. And I I kind of wish the pictures had just been a bit closer to the text because a lot of them, like we mentioned before, they seem more fantasy than than pseudo historical. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh... Yeah, when you mention it, just as a completely side note, there's a lot of tentacles in in this book. When I think about it, <laughs> uh, or or rather, it's it's a surprising amount of tentacles, considering it's a game about vampires, not Call of Cthulhu. But but yeah, I I agree that there is um, like I I would also like to see a, a bit more historical character examples. I think the for example the the. Uh, the mother superior, who uh, they mentioned, she's of course on the road of uh, of the uh, vizier, uh, because no, she's actually not. I no, that that was the thing that uh, that actually kind of of uh, um, I noticed because they talk about the 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 archetype is called the mother superior, but when you read the text, you realize that it's. It's not the actual mother superior or uh, that is the character. It's, uh, but but she in uh, in all practical sense she is. But she is the the power behind the throne. So I, I was actually kind of thrown when she wasn't uh, uh, on the path of the vizier. Of course, you can just change that. But uh, this kind of concept of someone hiding in a, a in a monastery and and just ruling from behind the scenes, it, it's a really cool one. Uh, and and would fit. Uh, it, it would be one of the more historical one, uh, as compared to like the the barbarian, uh, who I guess you could kind of make it work if if you like kind of take the stereotype and run with it and and like yeah you are presenting yourself as this kind of of noble savage almost, but but you do it. As part of your political playbook, like yeah, I I'm arriving from I don't know Eastern Europe or Northern Africa, where I am a very sophisticated noble because I have read the text of Aristotle translated to Arabic or whatever. But now I'm going to mm. visit uh, a court in in uh, the hellhole that is Northern France or uh, a, a deep forest in Germany. So and I, I know that these these people they don't even wash themselves regularly and and <laughs> half of them can't even read or write so yeah of course I'm gonna play on their prejudices and uh, and 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 like use that to my advantage and so in that way you could actually do something fun with it uh, but but yeah I I agree with with what you say as well that that they're they're a bit too simplified almost and and so know that when you or when or if you use them that they might need a bit of work yeah uh so we end with noteworthy note noteworthy thank you followers of the road we have mithras because we always have mithras yeah. <laughs> uh and we also have lord jürgen so we have the the two uh, or two of the big uh ventrue obviously hardestad is also one but he's not mentioned here mm. we have uh, etienne of poitou who is a Toreador prince of poitou uh we have luchita and i've 
find it a bit weird that she's mentioned as sort sort of a noteworthy follower of this road because she she is generally portrayed as quite rebellious. So she follows the road, but she also is rebellious against her sire. So it's weird how how she would be sort of a noteworthy follower of the road. Uh, and then we end with a Wolfgar the Reaver, a gangrel on uh, on the road, which is is kind of of cool. Yeah, it is, but there's a huge problem with Wolfgar. Um, Let's hear it. <laughs> yeah, well, they say that he was born on Iceland. And he was born and raised in a village in Iceland where he was a sailor and a warrior. And then if you go down and check the date of his embrace... Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's, it's 457 AD and... Iceland hadn't been discovered and colonized by that time yet. So, yeah, it must have been a lonely upbringing that poor Wolfgar had. <laughs> yeah, and, and the, na- the, the, the name Wolfgar is also... It's Germanic, bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, by the way, isn't that also the name of uh, one of Drista Urden's companions? Yes, in the Forgotten Realms. Yeah, yeah, you have Wolfgar, who who is... Yeah, he's, he, he's more of a barbarian chieftain than than a, <laughs> than a gangrel, though. But, but yeah, it is. Uh, and I don't know, it's like the, the idea of, of like a Viking following the road of, of kings, I, I like that, but it doesn't... Yeah. Uh, in, in this case, it doesn't really make any sense. And, and I feel that it's a bit of a wasted opportunity like yeah now we can actually show why a gangrel would follow this road and and then they just completely lost me with uh, with this um i i do uh, want to say that i do like the character portraits that that they're not this they actually sure they are a bit fantasy-ish and i think that lucita would probably uh, she would probably fit better in at the crew shadow concert than than at <laughs> a 13th century spanish court but again it's it's nothing over the top you don't have the the ridiculous kind of leather pants things that we've seen on some points uh the, the viking guy even though he is wearing furs it's not like the huge silly he has a fur cloak and and not just furry shoulder pads or or furry boots or whatever um yeah, so so that's uh, that's something that should be mentioned because they do it good. Uh, yeah, I especially like the uh, the image of Mithras, who does not scream like great warlord god king, but rather has a a sort of mystic, definitely alien feel to him that I really like. Like you you get this idea that he is he's not from around here, and and he has you know he he's from a very different time. So I think they managed to capture that really well in that portrait. Yeah, yeah, they do. I I'm not a huge fan of his of his facial tattoos, and uh, he does have a bit of a hipster beard. But yeah, oh, oh like <laughs> the overall image that you get when when you mention it, yeah, it, it does actually have quite a bit of a of, of like a. a uh, what, what what do you say the the other the otherness yeah. of him is is well captured yeah that's a that's a really yeah. nice point so uh let's just judge this book like the lords we are history wise there obviously isn't as much as in in many other books uh, but i think they do a good job of tying the road into current affairs so for me it's one thumb up but not two because as we've mentioned they do make a few egregious mistakes yeah i i agree with that i like I mentioned, I, I really do like the feel of the introduction, uh, the the story, 
that that we had and and that they do manage to tie some things together with how the feudal societies and how uh, just how hierarchical uh, medieval society is because like that that's something that you don't really think about or or that you perhaps not even realize if if you read about it it's like yeah people were poor and but they were stuck in that because that was how society was and and it mm. was like if if you were a a serf that was your lot in life that you were supposed to be and you weren't really even supposed to try to change that because you would change the order of god and, yeah, and that's exactly. that's one of the reasons why uh, merchants and people who started hoarding wealth and economical power were so looked down upon by the nobility because like what the fuck are you doing you're 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 gaining power but not because your ancestors managed to fuck the right prince but because you yourself is doing something good and you're making money stop that <laughs> that's it's yeah you're like it's it, it's a cool thing uh well it was a terrible thing but it's i like how they managed to to catch the kind of feel of just how uh, fucked up feudal society was but then on the other hand we have the things where they basically um, delegate uh, women to secondhand characters and they kind of like it's easy to look up when Iceland was discovered it's it's just yeah. a bit annoying but, <laughs> but yeah o- overall the things that they did good I really liked yeah as a gaming book well just like with Road of the Beast uh, it feels like there isn't enough material and the writer struggles to make word count this uh, really is a specialized book for those who are really into road of the road of kings it's got some good stuff for a game that isn't focused on that road uh, i would say more so than road of the beast in you know but it's still really specialized so i'll say only get road of kings if the road is really your thing or if you're like me a completionist <laughs> yeah yeah i was i was kind of thinking like how I would uh, rate the book from the, this kind of aspect because I've I've kind of already established that that this much focus on the roads in general isn't really for me, but it I feel that it would be unfair to judge this book solely on that. Uh, so I was thinking like, well, if if I am a person who wants to include. Uh, more road stuff in my uh, campaign whether it be as a storyteller or or as a player Uh, and like would I want to buy this particular book Uh, and and I think that yeah if like if if I wanted to include more of the road of kings and uh, or or more paths and or or perhaps just road of kings in general I, I think that's it's yeah it's it's an okay book like if i don't know how much it costs uh, or cost back then and but if it wasn't too expensive then i think it's it's probably not a bad uh, addition to your collection uh, like you said it has a lot more to add to to like non road of kings play uh, that that the, uh, the the beast book didn't so from that aspect alone i think it's a uh, it's much better book than than the the road of the beast book so uh so yeah if like if if you really want this then then i then get it but if if it's not your cup of tea then there are better things to uh to spend your money on i guess like for example a cup of tea yeah um, 
Next time we'll tackle the first half of Dark Ages Werewolf. This is going to be interesting. I'm really looking forward to that. Remember, if you want to support the channel, we have a Patreon. And if you have comments, suggestions or critique, pop by our Facebook book, Facebook page. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> and with that, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? Well, not any comments, but again, I just want to thank all our fantastic listeners and our patrons. And uh, like, yeah, please do ask us things on, on Facebook and uh, or just comment in general, because it's it's just great seeing uh, people writing there and, and like it, it's fun to interact with, with people. So, so please do that. Uh, but except for that, I hope everyone has a fantastical uh, spring or whatever season it decides to locally be at your place. <laughs> and so it is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell and see you next time. Bye. <laughs>